Turn with us then to the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, as you're turning there, uh, we'll be reading the misnamed, I would say, but very familiar Lord's Prayer in verses 5 through 15 is where our passage will come from today. We've spoken from this passage a number of times in the multiple decades of ministry, but today something um, new, I think, for me, anyhow, from this passage that we want to look at. Last week, um, as we shared with you what God had placed on our hearts then, we talked about what God wants from us and what God wants for us. And we talked about the connection between the two. And as I was even preparing that message and God working thoughts in my mind and heart, uh, these these thoughts that I want to share today also um, came in, in some infancy. Um, but we talked last week how God wants from us our repentance. And He wants from us repentance because He wants for us forgiveness. We talked about how God wants from us our faith because He wants for us confidence. We talked about how God wants from us obedience because he wants for us a life of purpose and meaning. The things that we do would matter. When you are obeying God, all that you do matters, even if it's the mundane things of life that we might call it. So God wants from us our obedience because he wants for us a life of purpose. He wants from us our worship and praise because he wants for us a life of joy and contentment. And then finally, he wants from us our love because he wants for us to know him. And we talked about all of those things last week. And today, I want to reverse the perspective and flip the script. What should we want for God and what should we want from God? And we talked last week about what God wants from and for us. What is it that we ought to want for and from God? And I think it's important that we have first in our minds the things that God does want for and from us. But that's not all that the Bible talks about. And as with what God wants from and for us, we will find that these two things, what we want for God and from God, are also connected, inextricably connected. Many pray with very little thought about what they desire or want for God. I think we're all probably guilty in some measure that we pray with a seeming lack of awareness or intentionality of what we want for God. It is almost always, it seems, it seems, at least for me, it seems that many of my prayers are are consumed primarily with what I want from God. But that's not how Jesus taught us to pray. That's not how Jesus taught us to begin our prayers. But it is so common that we pray like we do, that we want things from God. We rarely pause to think about it. It doesn't really make us stop and think. 
Prayer has become almost synonymous with something akin to a Christmas list that we write down what we want Santa to bring us. And then we take it a step further even, and sometimes we try to be good little boys and girls so that Santa might bring us what we want from him. And I think our culture, our nation, our society, our times have taught us to treat God a little bit like that. Coming to him with a list of wants from him and then try to live a good life so that he sees in us something worthy to give us what we ask from him. This is not a biblically mature way of thinking about God, about us, about prayer. But it is a way that is very familiar to us, I'm afraid. And again, this is not the type of life or this is not the type of thinking, this is not the type of praying that will lead to a powerful prayer life. We've recently been introduced to some people who have lived lives of incredible power in prayer. And we wonder what is the key? And there are a number of them, perhaps. There are a number of things that we can identify and say, well, this must be part of our prayer life. Consistency must be part of our prayer life. We must consistently be seeking God in prayer. We must be biblically minded when we pray. We must be aware of what God's will is. But you or I, none of us, will move heaven or hell or earth with prayers that contain only wants from God, with little attention to our desires and wants for Him. What has moved heaven and hell and earth in the past are people who first are motivated by what they desire on behalf of God. And that is, must come first, I Don't misunderstand me, though. God wants us to come to Him with our every desire. I'm not dismissing that. I'm not dismissing what we ought to want from God, and we're going to talk about that if it's God's will today. But it really isn't where we should start. It's really not what should be driving us to God. Not if we want our prayers to be deeply impactful for Him and for this world. I believe one of the greatest hindrances to our prayers is that they are so often unconcerned with God and focused entirely on us. This happens almost without us even thinking about it. It happens without us even thinking about it. We can tell a lot about where we are spiritually by what our prayers consist of primarily. And are they primarily or perhaps even entirely concerned about us? Or do they begin and is everything else flavored and seasoned by what we want for Him? When we come to God in prayer, are we thinking about Him Or are we thinking only about us? Do we immediately begin to list the things that we want from him before pausing and speaking to him of the things that we want for him? And I believe that's what Jesus teaches us here in part. As he gives us what has been called, and I do believe it's misnamed, this is really the disciples' prayer. This is how God taught us as his disciples to pray. This is what he wants us to think about as we're going to read. 
This really isn't um, uh, just a, a, a set of things to repeat, but it is a set of ideas to know and to understand and to have it be part of our prayer life. We learn many things in this prayer, far more than I could ever present to you in a single message. But I would like to look today at these very two simple thoughts from this prayer that the Lord teaches his disciples to pray what we should want for God, and then, and only then, what we should want from God. Matthew 6, verse 5, And when you pray, Jesus says, you must not be like the hypocrites. Jesus was, he didn't mix his words, didn't mince them, didn't hide them. He spoke them. Very offensive, no doubt, to these Pharisees. But he said, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you pray, so he says, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. So now he has insulted the Pharisees and the Gentiles, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. And if you could pause with it for just a moment. What he just said, and he says, pray then like this, pray then, since God already knows what you need. Since he already knows every need that you have to the most minuscule degree. He knows your macro needs and he knows your micro needs. He knows your financial needs and he knows your emotional needs. He knows your intellectual needs. He knows your needs at work and he knows your needs at home. He knows your needs at school. He knows your needs at 12 and he knows your needs at 82. He knows your needs all in between and he knows them. And so Jesus says, because God already knows this, this then is how you ought to pray. And I want you to listen very closely with this idea of what we want for God and from God from this prayer. And what does he begin with? He begins with the things that we ought to want for God. That's where the prayer begins. Pray then like this, verse 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And so now we've switched to the what we want from God. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. What we want from God and what we want for God, and we begin, as Jesus did, with what we, what we ought to want for God. Of course, the beginning, Lord, hallowed be your name. That is what we want for 
God. We ought to want. And I pray, and certainly it is true, that in the heart of a child of God, there is this desire that, God, we desire your name to be hallowed, to be consecrated, to be set apart, to be sanctified, to be holy, and his name be holy. And the name, of course, refers to the person, to the character, to the authority of God. God, hallowed be your name. This is to say, may you, Father, be sanctified and holy in the eyes of everyone and everything. So our prayer ought to begin. What we want for God ought to begin with this. God, may your name be sanctified. It is akin to the many places in Psalms where we read the writer encourages the whole universe to praise God. And we quoted this verse last week as well. We quote it here again, Psalm 68, 32. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God, sing praises to the Lord. If you've read Psalms very much at all, and I hope that you do, you will, you will be, you will be confronted again and again with the psalmist crying out to the whole universe to praise God, to honor Him. And I want to read to you Psalm 148 in its entirety, and I want you to hear the depth of the psalmist's desire that God be praised, that He be honored. And as we pray, as we think about God, we should say what we want for Him is to be honored, to be consecrated. And if there's anything that ought to break our hearts is that God's name is not honored in our nation any longer. It's dismissed. It's ignored. It's sidelined. To be, to be a believer in Christ today in far too many places is to be set aside as an inconsequential person. In the public square of our nation, the name of God is not honored and we are suffering the results of such a thing. And as we think about God, and as we say, what do we want for Him? It is to be honored. The psalmist says in, in chapter 148, praise the Lord. He says it again, praise the Lord. From the heavens, praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. He's not finished, not nearly so. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. He's looking up at the night sky and He's telling them, praise the Lord. His name should be honored and praised as a result of who He is. He goes on, praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord. For He commanded and they were created and He established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. And He's still not finished. He's just beginning. He says, praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind, fulfilling his word. Even may the weather, God, praise you and honor and consecrate you. When we see the mighty storms roll into our area and see the rain as it gives life-sustaining water to the crops that feed us, God, may it praise 
you. May when we come to God, want first and foremost for Him to be honored, for His name to be hallowed, and be right here side by side saying amen with the psalmist as he goes on and says, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. He just goes on and on. Let them praise the name of the Lord for His name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for His people. Praise for all His saints, for all the people of Israel who are near to Him. Praise the Lord. Is that in your heart and in mine? I hope it is. I pray that it is. I have seen it before. I know it is there for those that know the Lord and desire for Him to be honored. But may our lives, may when we think about what we ought to want from God, may we say first, no, I need to make sure I am rightly wanting for God what I ought to want for Him. And first and foremost in that is that He be praised. The lack of reverence and honor for God in our land should make our hearts heavy. The enemy has from the beginning desired to take from God praise and honor due to Him. But this prayer, though, begins with an admission that what we want for God is for Him to be honored to be honored in our own hearts and honored in everyone and everything else around us. But again, remember the order. If God's own people do not honor Him and praise Him and reverence Him, then what hope do we have that the world will? I remember, or you have thoughts of days gone by where people would honor God or they would honor Him through at least some measure of honor and respect for those who followed Him. Honor and respect for the man of God who would proclaim His Word. Honor and respect for the mother and the father raising their children in the fear and the nurture and the admonition of the Lord that these people are belittled today. And by belittling them, they belittle God. And they do not honor Him We note finally on this point before we move on that it is not our name that we want honored or hallowed or reverenced. Not not mine. Prayer when made in view of this model prayer that God, the Lord Himself gives us, is concerned about how others look at God, not how they look at us. We're only concerned about how others look at us insofar as it impacts how they look at God. We are, we are not as concerned that they dismiss or belittle us. We are greatly concerned, though, that they dismiss and belittle God. I have recently, and I've shared with some of you personally, how I was apologized to for some rather uh, unseemly language. And I remember thinking, why are you apologizing to me? It isn't me that you've offended. It isn't me that you stand before. It's not me that's going to judge you one day. For these choices you make. It's God and how you see me. I'm only concerned with how that impacts how you see God. And far too many times I have not been a good reflection 
But my main concern, my primary concern, as I go to God in prayer, and when I think about it, what do we want from God? What do you want from God? We can't get there yet until you fix your mind and heart rightly on what you want for Him. What you want for Him. Let my name be unknown or forgotten, but may that never be true of my God, and of course it never will be. He goes on in this prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. In addition to our desire for God to be hallowed, we want for God that His kingdom would come, that it would advance, that it would move forward. This is at the heart of every mission work that stands the test of time. I believe this is true. Every mission work that stands the test of time is rooted in this desire that God's kingdom would advance in the world, that it would go forth, that it would impact the world for God's name and his kingdom, that it would come reading the biographies of many of the, quote, what we would call great missionaries, and perhaps that's a fine enough word to use, but you will find in their lives that those years of work Burden and loss and sacrifice that was paid was given from a desire to advance the kingdom of God. That his name would be honored. I've used him as a reference many times. I use it again at the risk of using it too much. But Adoniram Judson, once again, missionary intended to India, got to India, had problems with his visa, ended up in Burma, and changed the Burmese nation, which is today Myanmar, changed it for all of history. Ends up in Burma in the early 1800s. This man lost financial support within months of leaving. The people that sent him said, we can no longer support you. It's not like you just jumped on the next return flight that you'd booked when you booked the flight out there and come home. He's out there on his own. He lost the financial support of of those that were going to support him within just a few months of leaving the country. He saw a grand total of 18 conversions in the first 12 years of his work. 18 in 12 years, having forsaken everything and left his home. He spent 17 months in jail as a suspected spy during the Burmese Civil War, being mistreated and tortured. And his wife, Anne, all the while doing everything she could with every government person and every local person to try to get him out and convince him he only is desiring to bring the message of Christ to you. He's not a spy. Finally, he's reunited after being released from jail with Anne, his wife, after 17 months of imprisonment, and she dies of spiral meningitis just a few months later. From 1812 to 1850, 24 of Judson's relatives and close associates went left and died left this life and went to the next, including several of his children and two of his wives. None of this was unknown to Judson, by the way, when he set out on that journey of his mission work. He wrote a letter to Anne's father, his first wife, asking him for permission to marry her. And he had already committed and felt the call of God to go to India. This is where he thought he was going. And he wrote this letter to his soon-to-be father-in-law. And he says, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring. 
to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure for a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for his sake? No. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior from from heathens saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? Sounds like he knew just what he was getting into. Why did he go? Why? Would he do this? Why would Adoniram Judson willingly choose to make such an, a choice in his life and for this woman that he loved? A lot of people would ask the same question today when, when people sacrifice everything to follow God. Why would they do that? They do it because they're right-minded and right-hearted about what they want for God. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom above all other things. Wanting for God that his kingdom would come is the essential ingredient in a life like Adoniram Judson, Hudson Taylor, all these others that we could list. If this is lacking in your heart, your prayers, and indeed your entire Christian life on earth will be severely limited and largely ineffective. That's difficult medicine to swirl around in the cup and put in your mouth and swallow. It's bitter to this flesh. And there'll be all kinds of people to say, oh, you don't need to do that. There'll be a lot of people to tell you, oh, you don't need to do that, who do not have in their own heart a desire for God's kingdom to come. Rather, they have in their heart that their own kingdom would come. This is something that you can't manufacture, you can't fake, you can't gin up in yourself. God knows this, He knew this, and Jesus Himself then provides for us in this prayer a reminder that we ought to strive for such a mindset. God, Your kingdom come. Three words, Your kingdom come, that will shape and upset, and demolish, and remake, and do all sorts of things that would get in the way of your own kingdom, and you say, not mine, God, yours. Of course, it is deep in our hearts, and it is, it is, you could hear it even in Adoniram Judson's letter. 
His desire for lost people who are facing an eternal separation from God and destruction. His desire is that they be saved. Our desire is that lost would be saved to avoid the penalty of death that awaits them. But we desire that salvation. Even that is because it advances the kingdom of God. It's not first It's a means to the goal of advancing the kingdom of God. It pushes back the boundaries and the borders of the enemy and it expands the army of God. And so we long to see people come to God and say, I repented and I believed and he saved me and I am his. And I go to the waters of baptism to publicly tell people whose team I am now on, whose army I am now a soldier in. I was a citizen and a soldier of this world before, but now I am a citizen and a soldier of God's, and it is His kingdom that I am first and foremost concerned about. And whatever happens on this side of eternity in my life, in this life, is all about His kingdom. Every child of God should be interested in the advancement of the kingdom of God. Not merely for how it encourages us for how it pleases and honors God. We note again here that it is not our kingdom, just like it was not our name that we desire to be hallowed. It is not our kingdom that we desire to advance. It is His. Like our name, we surrender our kingdom, little k, to God's kingdom, capital We realize that we are citizens in His kingdom now. And we realize that it is the best kingdom one could ever be a part of. An honor to the King and bless, and to be an honor to the King and to bless our fellow travelers in this life and exhort them as we walk along this side of eternity to become a fellow citizen and a fellow member of the kingdom of God on earth. Because we want God's kingdom to advance. We want His kingdom to come. And he says, finally, of wanting things for God, and there are others that we could pull out, but the one I want to mention in final on this first part is His will be done. What we want for God is that His will would be done. As it is in heaven. That's important. Not somewhat done. Not kind of done. But it's done, God, our desire for you is that your will would be done here just as it is in heaven. That's heavy words. So his will be done completely by everyone and everything at all times. That's how God's will is done in heaven. By everything and everyone, everywhere at all times. God, may that be the case for you here. May your will be done. May there be no rebels, no action taken contrary to your will, God. When my will and God's will are at odds, God, I submit to yours. 
Of course, I speak with him in honesty in prayer. And I believe, by the way, this, this kind of prayer requires the kind of honesty that requires a closet. If you never pray to God in a way that you go, I've got to find a place to be alone because I don't want anybody else to hear what I'm getting ready to say because they'll not understand, but God will. This kind of honesty, this kind of stripped away pride, this kind of honest uh, pouring out of your spirit to God to submit to his will, that requires a closet. That's rarely done in public. I have been blessed many times over by people who have been given by God the ability to pray in public and to speak blessings and exhortations, and it is a wonderful gift of God. But there are the greatest prayers that have ever been prayed. Nothing but the walls of a closet have heard in God. God, your will be done. And I, God, help me to wrestle my will in submission to yours because I want your will done, not mine. May there be no rebel. May I, God, never desert this army of this kingdom that I want to advance. There is something of a lost art of surrender in the Christian world today. Surrender. There is a lost art to it. Thinking about this pretty deeply, I have no idea. The book I just wrote some while ago, The Lost Anchor, I almost thought of the lost surrender. We've the lost surrender to God. We want God to come alongside us and make our lives blessed and wonderful and just joyful and all of these things, and we forget all the while God's calling us to surrender to Him, to surrender our wills to His. There is a lost art of surrender in the Christian world today and the surrender of self and self-will is often the greatest spiritual battle we fight. It's often the greatest, most violent, most consistent, and if you're like me, I fight this battle seemingly every moment of every day. I seem to win it with God's help and with his, with his strength and with his self-awareness that he gives me. And I look and I see, God, I've got to surrender myself to you again. Is that what Paul said? I die daily. This is the most violent and the most continual spiritual battle of the greatest intensity that you'll wage in your life at other times, though. This battle is lost because we never really fought it. Instead, we chose our own will and our own desires. And we did it without even thinking. I know I'm getting older. It was just yesterday I was a teenager. I remember driving, Seeing that old man and old lady sitting in their rocking chair on the porch and just wondering, my, how they just must be bored to tears. How sad. And now I'm getting closer to being the one sitting in that chair watching that young man drive down the road and say, You don't have any idea. Why don't you stop and slow down and think about your life? about eternity, about what it means to have life, to, be, have, to have been given life. Did you do anything? No. God made you. We talked about that last week. 
He called you and he calls to you to surrender to him. And a child of God, when they're right minded and their heart is right, they say, God, help me to surrender my will so that your will can be done. We, we lose this battle far too often because we never even pick up the sword of the word of God to fight. We never get down on our knees. And by the way, the best The best posture to fight this spiritual battle is not strong with your chest puffed out and on your feet standing against the enemy. It's on your knees with your shoulders hunched and your eyes full of tears because of your need and dependence upon God. That's where you're going to win your spiritual battles. It's not behind a pulpit. It's not in church on a Sunday. It's alone in the closet submitting your will to God's because you want for God that His will be done, not yours. If we are right-hearted and right-minded about God, about ourselves, about this life and the next, we will want for God that His will would be done and done completely and done by all and everywhere and at all times. Do you want these things for God? Do they come across your mind as you bow in prayer? And I'm not, I'm not giving you some recipe. Jesus wasn't either, by the way, and sadly we've turned it into that. This prayer into just repeated repetition, which he warns about in the prayer itself before. I pray, though, that the answer to that question is yes, I want these things for God. If it isn't, and surely there are times in all our lives that it isn't, pray for forgiveness and pray this prayer that the Lord gave us to pray and ask God to help you feel the meaning of each word in the deepest part of yourself. Once you have a sincere sense of wanting these things for God, you will be ready then to ask for things from God. And we'll we'll hurry through this. You've heard it many times. Many preachers have preached on these last few things I want to mention. Many Bible studies worthy and worthy of our time and attention. But you've got to get the for God first. At least in some sense. As a balance, it must be there. Otherwise, we're treating God like Santa Claus. We've got to start, God. I want your kingdom to come. I want your name to be hallowed. I want your will to be done. And now I'm ready to ask you for what I would like from you. We could look individually when he says, give us this day our daily bread. Our daily bread. We could spend so much time here just with these three words. We'll go through it quickly. We could we could just look at each one of these words, our daily bread. Not what God chooses to give to others, what he chooses to give to us. Not what God chooses to give to you when I pray this prayer. God, give me this day my daily bread. Don't give me someone else's. Give me the one, the bread that you would give to me. Not again what God chooses to give to others, but what he chooses to give to you. Remember, we want for God that his name be hallowed, that his kingdom come, and that his will would be done. So it follows that we would ask from him what he chooses to give to us today, not what he has chosen to give to someone else. You're going to get yourself in an all mixed up place spiritually, mentally, and emotionally when you begin to try to look at others and go, why can't I? 
as you look at others. You're going to get yourself in a terrible place. So Jesus teaches us, give us this day our mind, what you, give, what you would give to me, our daily bread, not tomorrow's, but today's. One of our greatest errors is wanting from God today's blessings and tomorrow's. We want them both, but Jesus taught us to ask for today's. Nothing blinds a Christian to the blessings of today like eyes only looking for the blessings of tomorrow. Nothing will blind you to the blessings God is giving you today when you have eyes that are only looking for the blessings of tomorrow. My eyes have far too often been set on tomorrow instead of today. So I ask you, what blessings of today are you missing because you're constantly looking for the blessings of tomorrow? What do you want from God? Our daily bread. And our daily bread, not a feast. Not, not something for us to gouge or to gorge on. Not something for us to just take and, and in our, in our lust or in our appetite for worldly things that we ingest and consume, but our daily bread, enough to sustain. What we thus want from God first might be summed up this way, enough for us today. This is what we want from God. No more. And by the way, no less. Because being given the promise and the opportunity to come to the creator of the universe and say, would you please give me today my daily bread? That is a blessing the world doesn't understand. This is a retirement account that renews every day you wake up. This is a bank account. This is the, this is the jar of oil in the Old Testament with the widow. This is the thing that God seemingly somehow every day renews and makes new. The daily substance and sustenance that we need. Don't misunderstand and think again that our daily bread is somehow insufficient to lead to a blessed life. It is the way to lead to a blessed life. Lastly, these last two things give, give us, what do I want from God? Forgiveness. Forgive me my debt. Forgiveness from God, repentance towards God, it is at the beginning of the Christian life and it continues until the day God calls us home. If repentance isn't continuing in your life, if you're not going to God on some, with some regularity and asking for forgiveness, you're not paying attention to your Christian life. That might be a little harsh to say it that way, but if you're not having to ask God for forgiveness for something on some kind of regularity, you know what you're saying? You're saying, I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't make a mistake. My heart didn't ever get out in front of me. My mind did not lead me to a place that was unhealthy and ungodly. I lived a pretty perfect life. You're, we know that's not true. So repentance continues. And so we want from God our daily bread first. We want from God second forgiveness. God, forgive me. Help me to be right with you. That's what we want, to be right with God. That's what forgiveness is all about. It's why the enemy is so belittled and so made it distasteful for 
the religious world today to deal with this thing called repentance. You don't need to do all that crying and that brokenness. You don't need to do all of that. You just need to check the box. You just need to be a good person. You don't need to be broken down. It's so untrue. It's not at all what the Bible says. You can't be forgiven until you ask for it, and you can't really ask forgiveness without feeling some brokenness in there. I'm wrong. I was wrong, and I am wrong. Would you forgive me? Lastly, the Lord gives us this example of what we want from God to not be led into temptation. Help us, God, to see, and my goodness, how we would avoid so much of pain and difficulty in our lives if we would heed this kind of thought. God, help us to see when our lives are leading us toward unnecessary and dangerous temptation. Help us to see before we make that turn down the road that if we make that turn off of your way and take our own path, help me to see the darkness and the, and the forest as it begins to grow and, and I can't really see very clearly. Help me to know, no, there might not be anything today that I could say is wrong about starting down this path, but God has given me wisdom to know that if I go down that path, I'm going to be faced with unnecessary temptation. And why would you test it? When we want first for God, for His name to be honored, for His will to be done, for His kingdom to advance, that'll keep you from being led down paths of temptation. So I finish today with what what we want for God informs what we want from God. And our prayers, according to this passage, should be focused or should at least be informing and, and instilling what we want for God instills and focuses what we want from God. What do you want from God? The answer can likely be identified by first answering what you want for Him. And I can also say that maybe, perhaps... James talks about this. Maybe we're asking God from God the wrong, maybe we're asking from God the wrong things because we don't first want the right things for God. Maybe we're not receiving the things that we're asking from God because we're not thinking first about what we should want for Him. And there's great clarity that can come from that. If you're lost today, I pray that your prayer becomes something akin to, Lord, I I want your name to be honored in my life. I want to hallow your name. I want forgiveness from you so that your name can be honored in my life. What do you want for him and what do you want from him? You know what he wants from you and for you. Now what's left is what do you want for and from him? I pray that God would bless these words and these thoughts in your heart today, that it would impact us, that it would shape and mold our hearts, our minds, our life. If you're lost, we encourage you to seek the Lord. He can be found. He is near. He will save. He will give you forgiveness. Let's have a song if we could.